Welcome to the Mind and Matter podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with neuroscientist and machine learning engineer Alex Wilchko. Alex is a senior researcher at Google Brain, where he applies his expertise in the neuroscience of olfaction to engineer machines to have a sense of smell. Alex and I actually did our PhDs at Harvard Medical School at about the same time, and Alex shared some of his work from that time using machine vision and machine learning techniques to understand and study animal behavior. This episode does have a visual component. Alex shares some really cool videos and data visualizations from his PhD work. We describe all of that verbally so those just listening can follow along, but I encourage you to check out this episode on YouTube because a lot of what we're looking at is really cool. Alex and I also discussed the neuroscience of olfaction, the sense of smell, and what he's doing at Google Brain related to this. We also talked about Alex's thoughts on different topics in machine learning and artificial intelligence more generally, and we discussed his experience moving from academia to the tech sector, as well as his entrepreneurial activity related to a machine learning startup he founded and helped sell to Twitter uh, just a few years ago. As always, if you enjoy the content here, please like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. That includes the audio-only version on podcast directories that you might be using, as well as the YouTube channel. We also have a Patreon, so you can go to patreon.com and support Good Chemistry there for a monthly donation for that's as little as two or three dollars a month. And we also have a community at goodchemistry.locals.com. And at either of those places, you can gain more information and access to me in the form of seeing upcoming guest lists and having the option of asking questions. And with that, here's my podcast with Alex Wolchko. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. Wolchko, how are you? I'm doing pretty well, Nick. How's it going? It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, So Alex and I, for everyone who's listening, we went to graduate school together. We did a PhD in neuroscience at about the same time. I think you were one year ahead of me. Mm -hmm. And Alex had some of the coolest work that I saw come out of the labs at the time. And that's a lot of what we'll talk about. But just to start with, can you just give everyone a rundown of who you are, where you're working, where you're living? what, What do you do? Sure. Um, so I'm a, I'm a researcher at Google uh, on a team called Google Brain. Um, I run the digital olfaction group. We might talk about that, but I'm trying to give computers a sense of smell. So we're, we're kind of inventing the RGB for odor to organize odor space, eventually to give computers the ability to turn the chemical world into signals to understand it, interpret it, make it searchable. Um, it was a long road to get there. Uh, Along the way, um, did a PhD, uh, as you said, at Harvard, at uh, Harvard Medical School in neurobiology, a study with a, a, a guy named Professor uh, Bob Data. And he, you know, he had a diverse set of interests in the lab, and I thought I was going to work on olfaction, and I did not. Um, I worked on animal behavior. We'll talk, I guess, a little bit about that. And uh, you know, in the course of that PhD, um, ended up wanting to understand what animals exactly were, were doing. And the, the story of how I arrived specifically at the way that we did that is, uh, is an interesting one, I think. Um, 
And uh, that ended up requiring some machine learning skills I did not have when I entered graduate school. I had done some programming before, um, but I didn't know the first thing about, you know, random forests or neural networks or any of that fancy stuff that people are talking about these days. Uh, and so I hit a wall in a pretty big way, ended up getting a second advisor um, or mentor, I should say, a guy named Professor Ryan Adams. Uh, and he kind of initiated me into machine learning uh, over a couple year intense period. And I work with a guy named Matt Johnson there too. Uh, Ryan ended up founding a startup around some totally separate technology called Bayesian Optimization. The startup was called Wet Lab. And we worked on that kind of nights and weekends for, I guess, a year and a half. And then we sold that to Twitter. Um, if you have watched Silicon Valley, <laughs> there's a episode where Jin Yang invents a, an app to identify whether or not you're looking at a hot dog or not a hot dog. Then he sells it to Periscope, which was a subdivision of Twitter at the time. And they use it to identify NSFW or not safe for work content. And you can imagine exactly what that might be. Turns out that's a true story. And it's actually, um, it's two companies uh, that formed that storyline, Madbits, which preceded us at Twitter and then WetLab. Because uh, what we did was basically work in the sanitation department of the internet of Twitter. Uh, and we uh, we cleaned it up and identified things that people might not want to see. Um, I, I really do think that that's actually really how the script was written. Because one of the advisors to the show was Dick Costello, who um, used to be uh, the, the head of Twitter. Um, so that's just a little <laughs> fun tidbit uh, there. Um, and then moved to Google uh, after about a year and a half of kind of doing, you know, pretty intense industrial machine learning work uh, on the internet and did some computer -y stuff at Google for a bit. And then ultimately ended up back doing biology, just kind of on a lark and uh, grew and built the team uh, working on digital affection uh, over the past two and a half years. Wow. Yeah. So there's a lot, there's a lot of cool stuff we can talk about with you. I want to definitely circle back to the digital olfaction work you're doing at Google. Um, I assume almost no one listening will know anything about that. I know very little about it. Um, I want to talk. That. Yeah. I want to talk first about behavior stuff. Sure. So you were doing what we might call computational ethology. You were studying using machine vision, machine learning techniques, and computer science stuff to understand animal behavior. So to sort of paint a picture of the general field of the neuroscience of animal behavior for people. Can you just give us a general sense at a high level, what are some of the major questions being pursued in the neuroscience of behavior today? What are neuroscientists thinking about when they study behavior? So I'll caveat all of it by saying I've been out of that field for, I guess, five or six years. Um, did publish a paper in 2020 on it, but that should have been published five years before. <laughs> um, so I, I wouldn't have considered myself a practitioner, even though it did, it did come out uh, while I was at Google. Um, so the question to me was, and still is, what exactly is behavior, All right? So like we've got this, at least for humans, this three pound piece of electric meat in between our ears. And the only reason it's there is to move our body to, you know, stuff our faces with food so we can continue to grow, to find mates and to avoid danger. Like the point of the brain is to orchestrate behavior. So if we're going to understand the brain and how it works, we really should understand pretty much the only thing it's there for. Mm -hmm. And it turns out we have a primitive understanding even today of what is behavior? What can we do with our bodies? Is every motion that we make a unique little flower never to come again? Or is there some kind of an alphabet of motions, of motifs, of syllables 
of behavior that we can emit by contracting and extending our muscles? Um, and do we compose all of our behavior from that finite alphabet? I think the, the jury's still out. I, I, obviously, given the, the work uh, that I've done, I'm kind of more in the syllable camp, but it's not so clear cut even, even today, uh, even in mice, which are much, much simpler organisms than, than we are. Hmm. So historically, before modern times, whenever that, whenever that is, whenever before, we define before yeah, COVID, <laughs> before, before computers, really, before, before we had all the fancy fair, tools that, that we use today, how were scientists studying behavior historically? Like, how did we actually go about it? Yeah, there's two, I think, amazing scientists that formed the basis of what we would call the field of ethology. And from that birthed the field of neuroscience and they, they split and they don't really talk with each other that much anymore. Um, and I felt fortunate to be able to kind of bring those fields in some little piece of dialogue again. Um, Lorenz, uh, who wrote a book called Solomon's Ring, which is kind of a personal dialogue of the love of animals and their behavior. And then Tinbergen, who wrote the study of, I think, animal instinct. Let me just make the study sure. of instinct. Yeah. The study of instinct. Yeah. I think I have it. I think I can see it in my own zoom view here. <laughs> I don't know if I can pick it up because I have a really, really old copy that's falling apart. So I don't know what the newer, newer bindings look like, but those are incredible books. And if you care about behavior, if you care about um, the line between instinct or automatic response and then voluntary behavior, I think it's really interesting to understand how deep and common and, and, and structured instinctual behavior is in the animal world. So they form the foundation of that field. And I think they got a Nobel prize together for that. Um, and I think their finding was, you know, if I were to summarize it really crudely, it's that there are repetitive behaviors that are ungated by particular stimuli and you can find it all over the animal kingdom. Uh, you can think of it as like displays, like mating displays where the birds kind of fluff up their feathers. That's one example of it. You know, it's, it's a behavior that's gated by the presence of an external stimulus, you know, usually a, a female, if the male is doing the display and by an internal set of stimuli as well, which is the current hormonal balance or, you know, circadian rhythm location or a seasonal location in the seasonal cycles as well. So both the internal and the external uh, stimuli collaborate to inform the brain. It's time to unlock a basically rapid fire set of stereotype behaviors in order to achieve some goal. And sometimes those behaviors are scattered and kind of statistical, like, ah, I'm, let's look for food more often than we groom ourselves, right? If you're hungry. And sometimes they're really stereotyped and uninterruptible. So, you know, mating displays are an example of that. Uh, grooming is often like cleaning yourself. That's often uninterruptible. Mating behaviors are often uninterruptible. And in fact, there's a line of papers from uh, circus trainers hmm. uh, that... I forget the exact author, um, uh, led me to mind, Giuliano, you really uh, pointed me towards them, uh, that there are some behaviors that you can train and shape. So you can get, you know, an animal to, you know, sit on, you know, their hind legs for some food, but there's some behaviors you can never train an animal to do. So you can't train an animal to mate for food. Uh, and you also can't interrupt it. You can't shape that behavior. You can't have them stop halfway through for any kind of reward. And so in our brains are a series of programs that if you press start on them, uh, a particular set of behaviors 
begin. And, you know, some of them you can stop, some of them branch into a bunch of different possibilities, and some of them are very linear. Uh, and so th to answer the original question, that's, I think, what Lorenz and Tinbergen established before computers or anything is by just looking at animals really carefully for a really long period of time, they began to see this kind of structure and behavior that it wasn't random. It was, in fact, uh, there's a lot of, of beauty and, uh, and, and almost determinism to it sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so they were really sitting and watching with their own two eyes, oh, yeah. animals oh, very yeah. carefully. And they learned some amazing stuff, as you mentioned. And in some ways, the work that I'm familiar with from you was, was just sort of like a very modern version of what they were doing. It was all about looking very carefully at behavior. So can you start to talk about some of the technology that you developed to look at animal behavior for your PhD? Sure, sure. Maybe, I mean, I, I've got some some visual aids from my time doing this work. Would that be useful if I if I presented some of that here? Yeah, put it up. Let's let's make sure we can see it well. And All then, right. Um, so let me hit cool share stuff. screen. You So you need to enable uh, participant screen sharing. You let me know when that's good, and then we'll all click. Good to go. Okay, share screen. Um, so here's this. I can I can full screen it. I can mm. leave it like this. It's whatever I like you think that. is best. Okay, cool. So this is a mouse in a bucket. <laughs> it turns out this is actually a really important. Um, this is an important thing that people watch, and the reason why it's important is that as this mouse moves around, sometimes people watch it in large pharma companies, and the mouse has been given a drug that they think could cure a human disease or make human life better, like alleviate depression or anxiety or schizophrenia, or even be a cancer drug. Mice are a bottleneck um, in drug development, and we need to see if their behavior becomes aberrant because it's an indication that the drug might cause aberrant neurological effects. And if we want a neurological effect, we need to be able to actually assess that that's occurring before we put it in humans. We need to de-risk it. Mm -hmm. This is a really critical step. The way people tend to do it or were doing it more often when I started my PhD is they turn the mouse into a dot and they follow where that mouse is. And uh, that's all the mouse is. You've collapsed this very rich organization that can, you know, whisk and move and run and jump and poop and everything into a dot that's basically got a position and a velocity. Um, or alternatively, people do what Lorenz and Tinbergen did, which is watch the animal very closely, right? Count the number of times it grooms with its right paw or its left paw, count the number of times it rears, all kinds of very granular stuff. That's basically a human opinion of what matters to mm -hmm. the mouse. So for, for people that have only the audio version, we'll try to explain what we're looking at very carefully. But if you if you are interested in this stuff, check out the video version on YouTube because you'll actually get to see what we're seeing right now. So Alex literally just showed us a movie of a mouse walking in a bucket. And now we're seeing a view where we're seeing it through through a machine lens where software has basically just turned the mouse into a dot. And we're just watching the position of this mouse scurry around. And it looks rant. It looks like a little kind of brownie in motion particle, just kind of mm -hmm. bouncing around a circle. You know, it's it's you know, there's no, doesn't look smooth or anything like that. Um, and turns out that if you give a mouse a drug, you can affect how fast this dot moves, and that can actually be a useful indicator of whether or not your drug is working or not working or has an undesirable side effect, something like mm -hmm. that. So if you gave the mouse like an amphetamine, it would probably start moving around faster. It would go around faster. And I'll show you some data uh, that indicates that is indeed the case. <laughs> um, so, you know, what, what I was assigned to do very early in my PhD was watch mice in these kinds of buckets. Mm 
And we had some specific experiments we were doing, but basically I was relegated to a dark room eight hours a day and mice are nocturnal. So we put them on a reverse light dark cycle. So I'd, I'd get up, uh, it'd be light for a little bit. I go into a room that was dark. I'd work, you know, handling these mice in a dark room for eight hours and I'd leave and it'd be dark. <laughs> and I, I felt like we could be doing better. And so really this, this, what I'm about to show you was an invention of necessity. I just thought, man, I don't need to be in this room. <laughs> and a dot is just not enough information. And so mm-hmm. what I ended up doing is, is, um, is going to Best Buy and I bought a Microsoft Connect. Like those, those things that you can point at you so you can play Dance Dance Revolution or whatever and it tracks your, your motion. Turns out inside of that camera, there's a lot of really interesting smarts. There's actually a depth camera that will tell you how far away each pixel is measured in centimeters. It's a depth camera. Hmm. And so I pointed that at the mouse and what you're seeing here is the same mouse running through this bucket, but there's a heat map, there's a color map on the mouse where when the mouse's nose goes up, it gets red and you can see the contour of the spine. You can see that the edges of the mouse, which are closer to the ground or in a cooler color. Um, this is a, a, a representation of the actual 3D shape of the mouse's body. Mm-hmm. You can tell and, it's actually a mouse now. If you showed this to someone and you didn't tell them it was a mouse, they'd be like, oh, it looks like a, a little mouse running around. A little rodent thing. A it's, like, it's just like psychedelically colored, you know, yeah. but it turns out that's data, right? <laughs> um, and this is something that for one reason or the other just hadn't been tried. I think part of it was that the Kinect was kind of new. Um, I had on the side been hacking on Kinects with my friends to like build cool art installations and stuff. And so that's kind of where the actual link came to try this out. And um you know, what we did is a little bit more computer vision and machine learning to identify the head of the mouse. And so now what I'm showing is the same mouse running around. Uh, the color scheme is slightly different, but it indicates the same thing. And there's a lollipop that's kind of, seems like it's glued to the top of the mouse and the, the, the head of the lollipop is at the head of the mouse. That's just a representation to show that, you know, I've used a computer algorithm to identify where the head of the mouse is and where the tail of the mouse is. And then I can, for every frame, take like a scalpel on the image and cut out the rectangle around where the mouse is. Mm-hmm. And now I've, I've got like this, this bird's eye view that's always aligned to the mouse's head and its tail. And the spine is along the horizontal axis of the image. And this is a really, really rich source of data for behavior. So Xbox Connect, it's a depth camera. It's looking at a mouse in a bucket and you, you can already tell so much more than we could before. So you basically have precise moment to moment knowledge mm-hmm. of exactly where the animal is, how fast it's moving, whether or not it's rearing up or looking down. And is that about it at this point? Yeah, that's about it. I mean, you can think of it as like getting about the same level of like metrics that we put on like football players and mm-hmm. basketball players. Mm-hmm. And we really care about those stats because it indicates their performance and what they're doing and stuff. And so just kind of applied that sabermetrics idea basically to mice to get as much information as we possibly can about what they're doing. And then the question is like, well, what are they doing? So what this is a representation. I'm, I think, let me see if there's, okay, great. That's what that'll play. So I'm showing the same mouse, but each, each, this is kind of a weird representation, but let me walk you through it. So mm. on, on the left is the mouse in this kind of aligned view where the head is on the right and the tail is on the left. And I'm using a color heat map to indicate, you know, what's higher and what's lower. Each slice, each vertical slice of this image is one frame, one moment. And so instead of two dimensions, I'm just using one dimension to show the mouse's body. I just kind of like flattened the the image basically. Mm -hmm. And over time, what you can see 
is that there's these striations that mm-hmm. the mouse transitions from doing one thing to another very abruptly. So one idea of behavior is this, is this continuous fluid kind of mess. Mm-hmm. And you can never tell when one quote behavior starts and one other quote behavior ends. But it turns out that it's just popping out in the data mm-hmm. that there's these discrete transitions in what a, an animal does with its body. Yeah, you can so think about, go ahead. Looking yeah. at, uh, you know, you can tell you have this heat map of the mouse body on the left and you can tell that the mouse is like walking around and then all of a sudden it will stop and lick itself or something. Mm-hmm. And then you're showing us this weird looking barcode type image that represents the animal's behavior. And and for those who can't see it, it's really like it, you really see these discrete jumps where all of a sudden the behavior is different. It's almost like we're looking at a barcode for the mouse behavior. Mm, yeah, over time. And you know, this this kind of led us to the question of just like, well, what are in these barcodes? What are in these blocks? Like, is each of these blocks here that you can just see with your, your plain eye, is that a unique behavior? Mm-hmm. And we kind of mentioned this, like, is there just like two behaviors that the animal does or are there infinite? Meaning mm-hmm. that every time the animal does something, it's totally new or is it somewhere in between? Mm-hmm. So our first step was like, well, how big are these blocks? How long do these little syllables of behavior actually last. And we looked at it in a bunch of different ways. Turns out there's about a third of a second. So for mice, which move a lot faster than people, the fundamental timescale of behavior is is faster than one second, Um, which I think is part of the reason why people missed this structure of behavior is because you kind of do need computers Mm -hmm. and cameras to see it. It's just too fast to kind of take an even accounting of it. Um, unless you know you've got genius level rhythm or something like that. <laughs> and then our next question, and I won't get in too much into the machine learning stuff. But the next question was like, okay, so there are these syllables of behavior. They seem to last about a third of a second. Seems to be like a fundamental mode or or time scale of of mouse behavior. How many of these things are they? And are there? And what do they look like? And so that's kind of where the machine learning part came in. And and we built this like fancy machine learning model, and I won't get into the big acronym of what it means, but the way you can think about it is it's the same model, not anymore, but in the early days of speech recognition, it's the same model that would take an audio recording of human speech and parse it into its constituent parts, into syllables or into words. So we applied that same logic of finding the, like, the parts of spoken speech and applied it to the animal's body as it was kind of speaking to us, at least through a computer vision algorithm. And we were able to find that there's not just two behaviors and there's not an infinity of behaviors. There's some smaller number and it depends on how long you watch the animal. The longer you watch the animal, the more behaviors you can observe. You can tell really subtle behaviors apart as opposed to clumping them together. And for the average experiment in the neuroscience lab, it's like 60, 60 60 syllables. The alphabet of behavior, the average neuroscientific experiment through this lens has 60 letters or syllables in it. Gotcha. So in other words, if you've got a mouse in a bucket, you're watching it through a depth camera, and there's approximately 60 different things that a mouse will do, and it will do them discreetly, one at a time for different lengths of time. And that tends to be on the scale of milliseconds, hundreds of milliseconds. Hundreds of milliseconds. So let me give you a concrete example. What's beautiful about this is you can go back to the tape. You can go back to the raw recording and say, what was the mouse doing? And so here's an example of one syllable. Boop. I'm just putting a white dot on top of the animal. What you're seeing is one of these little kind of blobby mice with the false color heat map representing its shape turning right. 
very mm -hmm. briefly for about a half a second. And when the mouse is in the specific syllable that was identified by this whole computer vision system, I'm putting a white dot on the animal. So you can see what comes before and what comes slightly after. And then what I can show you is 40 different mice overlay. There's actually 10 mice and just four instances per mice per mouse. Uh, and so I can overlay them so you can see this kind of like synchronized swimming view of this syllable as it's been used multiple times by multiple mice. And if this is in fact a stereotyped um, unit of behavior, it should look synchronized. And so when the white dot goes on, all the mice kind of turn to the right <laughs> in a synchronized way. This is just one of 60 of these syllables and the exact number varies, but it's about usually about 50 or 60. So these are kind of my, this is like my all-time top hit syllables. I love these little behavioral motifs. So here's a kind of a stereotyped sway walk that the mouse does when casually crossing the middle of the bucket. Um, here's a, a hunting dog pose where the mouse kind of gets up on all fours and then rears its, its head a little bit. Uh, this is rear and turn where the mouse gets up on its hind legs and then puts its nose in the air and then falls to the right, if, if I remember that correctly. Hmm. Yeah. And then run, forest, run. This is, this is one of my favorites where the mouse from a kind of almost a slow walk just darts really quickly. There's a lot of these. Um, and it turns out that if you count how often the mouse does each of these behaviors, that can form kind of a fingerprint, right? In the same way that if you listen to someone's audio and you do... I mean, there's lots of ways of processing it, but you can do what's called a Fourier transform and you can figure out what frequencies people tend to talk about and you're, mm -hmm. you're kind of collapsing or tend to talk at. And you're kind of collapsing, uh, could be three seconds of speech, could be 30 seconds, could be three hours of speech into one small description of is my voice high, is it low? What are my harmonics? So it turns out you can do something similar with these syllables, just count how often each of them are used. And you might imagine that under different circumstances, different syllables might be used differently. So for instance, if I'm playing tennis or running, there's certain motions I'm going to do with my arm that I'm not going to, I'm not going to make a running motion when I'm sitting at my desk, taking meetings all day. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine that the position that you place yourself in the context is going to affect these things. Maybe uh, your genetics will affect these things too. How often you use different behaviors, maybe the drugs that you have in your veins and that are in your brain at any given moment will also affect these behaviors. So that, that's kind of the, the hypothesis that we were working on is we did a lot of work that I won't necessarily go into unless you think it's of, of interest to, to your listeners. But you know, the, suffice to say, like what we were able to create was this kind of behavioral fingerprint that summarizes behavior in a really information dense way in the way that a barcode summarizes, you know, what it's representing, you know, is it, when you scan a barcode, you get what exactly the product was, you know, how much it costs, who, who shipped it, all kinds of things. Um, and then here, this barcode is telling us everything that the mouse has been doing with its body and how frequently. So you've essentially, you know, you're essentially doing what people like Tinbergen and Lorenz were doing on steroids. You're using computers and technology to automatically parse all of the all of the little individual behaviors that mice are doing when they're just hanging out. Different types of mice do different things based on their genetics and based on other things. And you can automatically come up with this so-called barcode that distinguishes different types of mice based on their behavior. 
What about, um, you mentioned earlier how often, you know, so, so much of the medicine that we take as humans is first tested on mice and other animals. So what are the sort of applications for this type of behavioral analysis for things like drug testing? Yeah, so this, this technology was commercialized in a company called Syllable Life Sciences, and that was later acquired by, by a separate company. Um, and uh, they're actually actively putting it to use to try to develop new drugs. And the, the idea of what came before is this. So we actually talked about this a little bit. You know, so usually when you give a mouse a drug, you measure something about the mouse as a dot right? So how fast is it going? And so on the screen, I'm showing kind of distribution. Actually, let me skip to the next slide here. Um, I might measure how fast the mouse was running on average or what the distribution of, of its speed was. And so, you know, here in this red curve is if, you know, me giving a group of 10 mice each a uh, dose of methamphetamine and m mice turn out to run faster when they've been given a dose of methamphetamine uh, injection. Uh, Versus when I give them fluoxetine, which is not as, you know, it's kind of, well, it's not, it's not a stimulant. Uh, and so here's an obvious difference. Like the only thing that I did to these mice, which are otherwise genetically identical, born at the same time, raised in the same way, look identical. The only difference is I, you know, put one drug in one set of mice and put a different drug in another set of mice. And you can tell the difference in that drug, you can read out the drug almost by looking at properties of its behavior. This is really crude though. So what we did is we did a quite a large scale experiment, um, at least at the time, where we took about five, actually, I think it ended up being around 600 mice. And for each mouse, we gave it a drug at a particular dose. And we basically calculated this behavioral barcode, as you say, or behavioral fingerprint, and we said, hey, this looks like nonsense to my eyes, but maybe if we feed this barcode into a computer, we can actually build a machine learning model that just by looking at behavior can tell what drug that mouse was given. That's the goal. Can we just look at the mouse's body and figure out what's going on inside its brain? And so, you know, the way that we evaluate that is using here, where we can kind of go into the details. Uh, this is called a confusion matrix, and I'll kind of go over the rows and the columns because it's it's a really good way to evaluate how well a statistical model or a predictive model is working. So remember, the context is we've we've turned mice into numbers, and we hope that those numbers represent what drug that mouse was given. We're trying to read out the state of the mouse's brain just through its behavior. And so, as I mentioned, there's a bunch of different ways to turn mice into numbers. The first is just measure like, hey, where is it in the arena? And so what I'm showing on the screen here is called a confusion matrix. And on the uh, columns and on the rows, there's labels, antidepressant, antipsychotic, benzodiazepine, control, SNRI, SSRI, stimulant. Those are different classes of drugs, you know, broad classes that can encompass many specific drugs. And the, the columns have the same labels. And the way to read it is, you know, if you look at one row, it says antidepressant, and you have a hot uh, square uh, at the column that also says antidepressant. What that means is, yeah, I gave the mouse an antidepressant and my machine learning algorithm, just looking at the numbers that represent that mouse's behavior was able to tell, yeah, I actually gave it an antidepressant. 
So on this representation, the only drug class that seems to be working is stimulant. I gave a mouse a stimulant and my representation of behavior using just position where the mouse is. Mm -hmm. I can only read out stimulant. I can't read out the rest. Mm -hmm. And I imagine, so for something like this, you know, if you just took a naive person who had no training in psychiatry or anything, but knew a little something about stimulants and other drugs, they could probably watch people who had been given different drugs and tell like, okay, maybe that's the guy in the stimulant because he's He's jittery, around moving around too fast, you know, engaged in stereotypy, which is like repeated kind yeah. of short behaviors. Yeah. I imagine that the computer vision tools that you're using allow for much more subtle parsing of things that we can actually see with our eyes. Do you have examples of that? Yeah. So if we use our kind of behavioral fingerprint using this algorithm, we get a confusion matrix that tells us that for every drug class that we have in our data set, we can read it out. Hmm. Meaning if you show me 20 minutes of mouse behavior and I parse it with my system, I can tell you what type of drug that mouse is on. And this is kind of an, this was an astonishing finding to us because like the only thing we have access to is the outside of the animals that's moving around. Mm -hmm. We're not doing any chemical assays of its brain, but yet we actually can tell what's going on inside of its brain, at least to a limited degree. And this is just for the drug class. I'm not telling you about the drug identity. It turns out that you can make the same confusion matrix, but instead of you know stimulant or SNRI, you can actually try to read out the specific identity of the drug that the mouse was given. You can do that with this technique as well. Meaning if you have some set of 15 or 16 drugs like we did in this data set, and you give a mouse that drug and you don't tell me what drug that is, I can just watch it using my system and tell you exactly what drug that is. And beyond that, you can actually do it down to the dose. So if you give a, a mouse a drug at a high or a low dose, we can read that out too. And that indicates this is a, what we've built is a really powerful representation or summary of behavior that allows us not just to understand how behavior is structured, which is a really kind of interesting basic question in ethology, but it's useful. Mm -hmm. We can portion, you can portion behavior into its pieces sum them back up again, figure out, you know, over 20 minutes, what was the mouse doing on average? And then use that to actually say, and this is how the mouse's behavior has been altered. Mm -hmm. And we've used this methodology in a couple different regimes to understand mouse models of autism, mouse models of OCD, uh, whether or not a given drug for autism actually reverts, reverts the specific disease phenotype, the specific things that are changed in that disease mm -hmm. or not. And uh, this kind of this tool, I think, is still living on uh, in in the, the data lab and elsewhere, and also in industry. And people are actively using it to kind of find new treatments and understand disease more deeply. Do you have the video of the fox urine experiments? Oh yeah! Wow, that's a blast from the past. I th I actually think this one's it. <laughs> I think that this this is. I spent a lot of time with this box in the dark. This is kind of where it all started. Um, you might actually have been in the room when I first presented this data at the, the, the HMS uh, PIN seminar. I think I was, yeah. So this is, it's going to be a video of 10 mice and I'm just showing the contour of their body. So they just look like little squiggly ovals. And behind them is a heat map of where they're usually spending their time. And I built this box over many years <laughs> It does something simple. It seems stupid, but it's actually important for understanding how odor changes behavior. 
what it does is it's got four compartments, four equal size squares that are put together to make a bigger square. And in each of those squares, I can control the odor that the mouse smells in that square using vacuums and tubes and all kinds of stuff. And what I'm doing is I'm pumping in the smell of fox butt. So it's TMT, trimethylthiazoline, and it's a metabolite that foxes can't help but make as a result of being meat eaters, if I understand correctly. And because all predators and prey are constantly engaged in basically chemical warfare, you know, the predator is trying not to give themselves away. So is the prey. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to figure out, okay, what's the advanced notice I can get? What sniff can I get that tells me there's a fox nearby? TMT is one of those weapons in the mouse's arsenal where the fox can't help but make it. And so the mouse has learned to exploit it, to be afraid of it in order to get away from foxes. And so in this video, you can see a bunch of mice root moving around. Well, importantly, uh, you said the mouse has learned that, but this is innate, right? It's innate. I should say it learned it over evolutionary time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it turns out that these mice that we use have been inbred for about a century. <laughs> and so they're uh, a little bit less afraid of this molecule than uh, they might have originally been. Uh, but nonetheless, they still have over a hundred years of having, having never seen a fox in their brain, somehow encoded in their genome is a relationship between this molecule smell and a desire to run away. Mm-hmm. So as I play this video, you can see mice moving around. There's no fox smell. And then at a certain point, I will introduce fox smell in the, uh, I think it's the bottom bottom right. Yeah. And oh, you wow. can see mice aren't spending any time there. They're going to the edge of this little quadrant and then darting back. Some few bold ones are actually traversing it, but most are kind of entering and then leaving. Uh, so this is kind of where everything, all this whole line of research started was like, gee, I'd, I'd like a better way to describe fear. Mm-hmm basically, uh, rather than just where is the mouse relative to this odor source. Mm-hmm. And uh, we kind of took it overboard a little bit in building the methodology to, to explain that. So if we come out of the screen share now, I want to use this as an opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, olfaction in the brain a little bit to give people a sense for some of the stuff there, because it's really cool. So you were in a lab studying olfaction can you talk a little bit about why olfaction is, I don't want to say special, but how is it different from things like vision in terms of why it's interesting or still mysterious in, in many ways? Do you know what Moravec's paradox is? No, I don't. So I think it kind of encapsulates why olfaction's been a difficult nut to crack. So Hans Moravec was kind of a philosopher in the 20th century, and he, he raised this paradox, which is basically to ask the question, why are some things that are so hard for us, so easy for computers? Hmm. And why are some things that are so easy for us, like walking across the room blindfolded and then opening a door, which no robot can do today, why is it so hard for us to program computers to do those things? And the explanation and rationale that he gives is that the things that are hard for us have come on the scene very, very recently on an evolutionary timescale. And so they're a struggle because we're not yet evolved to do them well. Mm -hmm. And the things that are super easy, evolution has been cracking on for hundreds of millions of years, like moving or looking or hearing. Those are trivial for us to tell, you know, a forest fire from uh, the smell of a fruit. Easy. Turns out that there's no electronic noses that can really do that reliably. Uh, And the reason I think is that evolution has spent a long, long time solving that problem on behalf of all terrestrial species. And so 
for us to waltz in and think, oh, it's so easy for us to do day to day and then believe it's going to be easy for us to replicate on a computer. That's the paradox. It's not easy. And so smell is evolutionarily much older than any of our senses. And you can see that inside of the brain. It's, it's got basically, it's got its own VIP entrance into different parts of the brain, into uh, the hippocampus, which is responsible for memory and into other areas of the brain that are responsible for like fear and things like that. So the sense of smell goes directly from the nose to an area of the brain called the olfactory bulb, which you can think of as kind of like the retina, I guess, of a smell. And then from there, it gets to go right to memory and skip all, skip all the other things that, that, are, uh, uh, that are occurring inside of the brain. So for instance, every other sense has to go through a small piece of tissue in the brain called the thalamus. And so there's a way station. So the experience of touching my own skin of my own face actually takes longer to reach uh, certain parts of my brain than sniffing. There's just fewer synapses between the you know, direct sensory uh, experience and uh, its availability to the rest of the brain. And if you just actually go look at the part of the cortex that's responsible for smell, it looks evolutionarily very old. It looks closer to like what happens in lizards than it does in the rest of mammals. There's fewer layers in the piriform cortex, for instance. Hmm. So humans, you know, at least when we think about like dogs, you know, people always talk about how good dog smell is, but in some sense you can, you can imagine that it's really more that humans are really bad at smell. Is that true? Have we sort of lost? It's a myth. myth. I can, I, I think it's a myth and there's been some research I think really, you know, puts the nail in the coffin. There's some great research from a guy named Noam Sobel. And what he sh- has shown is not only do we have a pretty good, you know, acuity in, in detecting molecules. I mean, the smell, just in a, as an example, the smell of natural gas, which you've probably smelled, natural mm-hmm. gas has no odor, but we, by law, add in a type of molecule called a mercaptan. Hmm. We can smell that in parts per trillion. That's the oh, equivalent wow. of like one eyedropper droplet in an Olympic sw- in an Olympic sized swimming pool. I mean, amazing sensitivity right between our eyes. This this postage stamp sized piece of tissue called the olfactory epithelium, which is more sensitive than nearly every laboratory piece of equipment that you can get a hold of. I mean, my cell phone camera is a pretty good camera and approaches the resolution of my eye. I don't know exactly what the resolution of my eye is, but I have no problem looking at a picture that I took on the iPhone and zooming in and still having more resolution than I can handle on a big screen. Mm -hmm. But we don't have anything like that for smell. Do humans have any innate, like hardwired smell associations the same way that the mouse has the fox urine association built in? It's a great question. I think it's an open question. So this notion of whether or not there are uh, like hormones or uh, sorry, not hormones, um, pheromones, uh, pheromones. That's right. Uh, the question of whether or not there's pheromones for people, uh, is kind of an open question. I think that there's not based on the evidence that I've, I've seen, um, that there's kind of like a strict academic definition of pheromones, which is that if you smell it, you have to do something. You're kind of like your brain has received a signal and you now must do something. Uh, and I don't think that humans have that. Uh, but as to whether or not like, you know, the smell of Parmesan cheese is good or bad is mm-hmm. definitely cultural. The smell yeah. of whether or not kimchi is good or bad is definitely cultural and also can change over your lifetime. Yeah. And I, now, how, how, 
how much, I mean, this probably doesn't have a precise answer, but my instinct, my instinct is, um, my opinion is that a lot of our smell associations are probably learned associations, even the ones that we naively assume are built in. Like, I think if you ask the average person, you know, do roses smell good? They would say, yeah, that's, that's maybe built in. That's natural. Or does sewage smell bad? Well, of course it's just built in, but do you have a sense for, uh, do you think most of our smell representations are actually modulated by our experience and how, how plastic are those? Can, how easily can they be changed? Yeah. I mean, as you say, there's no precise answer, but you know, when you're very, very young, what smells good and bad isn't quite formed yet. And so whether or not poop or pee, you know, smells bad, isn't formed yet. You'll notice that by the behavior of very young children uh, that are kind of insensitive to things that we would think they shouldn't touch or shouldn't put in their mouth. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you begin to build these associations over time, either through, you know, reinforcement from adults in your, you know, your home or in your, your social group um, or through actual experiences. Like you ate something that smelled a particular way and then you got real sick. Mm -hmm. That's also a very quick way to build um, uh, odor associations. But then there's something that I've become interested in that's a little subtler, which is smells don't occur all on their lonesome in the world, right? You'd have to build a very constructed environment in order to miss out on some of the, the patterns that exist. And, you know, for instance, when you smell a rose, you often smell the grass that it's been planted in, or you smell um, the dirt that it's been planted in as well. And so we're always forming these associations that are kind of linking together in a web that tell us like, oh, if I smell this, I'll probably smell this other thing. Mm-hmm. And along with that, we're building associations to experiences and expectations. Like if I smell the products of the Maillard reaction, there's probably baking bread nearby. Um, there's all these chemical reactions that occur that require certain precursors that are important to us, right? So the Maillard reaction takes sugars and amino acids and forms these nice smelling compounds that are, you know, responsible for baking bread smell for, uh, you know, a searing steak. I mean, really, really nice stuff. Uh, that smell itself is not nutritious, but it's really, really indicative that there's nutrition, delicious nutrition nearby. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we are these association machines in a way and our sense of smell has learned in ways I don't understand uh, to build these associations that ah, I smell this. It must mean something's nearby. It must mean something useful, something harmful, something you know interesting. Uh, and, and we kind of construct associations on top of the basic sensory percepts. Mm-hmm. One of the things that comes to mind here is I know that a lot of people in in my world, in the world of cannabis, for example, have trouble doing certain forms, uh, certain sensory studies. So uh, the cannabis plant produces a lot of volatile compounds, just like all flowering plants do, that smell really interesting. A lot of them smell really good. A lot of, some of them might not smell so good, but different combinations of these molecules produce different sensory perceptions in people. And there's there's a lot of interest in sort of mapping out what the logic of that is, like which combinations produce, produce which smells. And a lot of people who just try and do this naively, I think, run into a wall right away, which is you give people a bunch of cannabis strains or you give them formulations with you know precise chemical contents that are known. And you find that 
the results you get when you ask people like to describe it are sort of all over the place. And it turns out that you know, even if people smell the exact same thing, and even if we assume their percepts are the same, they talk about it differently. They don't have the right. same vocabulary for, for discussing it. And so I'm wondering if you could maybe comment on this, and, and it could be a good segue into your work at Google. Um, if it's so difficult in humans to sort of map the perception to the stimulus because people talk about it in such different ways because of all these other associations they have, how do you think about this problem in the context of some of the the digital olfactory work that you're doing? When I was in kindergarten, I had a Crayola crayon box <laughs> and there was like 64 crayons in it and each of the crayons had a name. And I learned, you know, over the years to associate certain colors with certain names and my vocabulary, I probably can name, I don't know, 200 colors. I'm making that up, but not a thousand, probably can't name mm -hmm. a thousand. I can name more than 10. Um, I've learned word sensory associations for color because I was trained implicitly by that Crayola crayon box and by, you know, Pantone colors and RGB and all that stuff. Same with sound. You know, I've, I saw a violin being played. I heard it. Now I can identify that as a violin. Can I tell it from a viola? No, because <laughs> I'm not a trained musician, but I can get in the ballpark of string instrument. We have no such opportunities in our society today with olfaction. So we, we don't get trained to do word odor associations in any really meaningful way uh, from a young age. And you can learn it as an adult. It's pretty hard. I've got some odor training kits next to me uh, because my, my team at Google, we kind of, we've gone to a perfume training crash course in <laughs> France and we've uh, kind of been continuously trained at, at a couple different ventures to understand exactly what it is that we're working on. Uh, you can learn it but you have to mm -hmm. practice it. And we practice color word associations every day. Could you pass me the, the salt? Oh, what is it? What's oh, the blue thing? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, great. Got it. Thanks. Um, but we don't say, okay, could you pass me the, could you pass me the, oh, the, well, which one? Oh, the one that smells like lily of the valley. So what? Oh, like, like Muguet, like the lily of the valley, that smells. <laughs> what, what are you talking about? It's like yeah. the, the dryer sheet smell. Oh, the dryer sheet. Okay, got it. Yeah. yeah. But as you um, say, it is learnable. My understanding is when people do these, you know, perfume training courses or other sensory studies, the way that you do them to actually get results that are meaningful is you first train people to to use certain words as descriptors and you say this this base molecule is this smell this is what we're yep. referring to as this you start smell. with the template yeah 100% right. and then you you got to train yourself on that template and so that's part of the work that that I've been doing in my group in collaboration with some some academics as well is can we train people to be reliable at delivering labels of odors and the answer is yeah and we'll be uh, publishing that research later this year, along with some interesting validation of that, um, going to actually find smells nobody's ever smelled before, mm -hmm. uh, at least molecules nobody's ever smelled before. Uh, kind of, uh, it's an interesting needle in the haystack experiment where we used a, a machine learning model to uh, to go find interesting molecules, uh, and you know, have more details about that a bit later this year. Interesting. Um, can you speak at all about? You know, so if the idea is to give computers, machines, a sense of smell, just like they already have a sense of sight, right? Like we're on a we're Zoom using call it right, right now. now. Like yep. we've got cameras. That's that's the machine version of our eyeball. What does the hardware look like for a machine to detect molecules floating around in the air? So look up. I'm I'm actually probably sure you've got an Eno's above you. It's a smoke detector, and that's ah. one simple version of an electronic nose. It's only got two notes 
to it. It can detect usually carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide. Some, some can do more. Hmm. Um, inside of a camera, there's a couple different technologies that people have historically used to turn photons, light, into uh, digital signals, like voltage changes or, or current changes. Uh, and so it's not quite, the book's not quite closed on how to actually turn photons into, into digital signals. For, for odor, it's even more open. So DARPA in, I think the late nineties, um, funded a program to build electronic noses to detect mines because there were still landmines in former areas of conflict and kids would step on those mines and they'd die. And so the, the initial motive of building an electronic nose was to clear minefields because rats can actually smell mines uh, and so can train dogs. But gee, we'd really like something that wasn't living doing that work. Mm-hmm. And so that spurred a whole set of innovation. And then it went away because the funding kind of stopped briefly. And then there was another DARPA initiative to build electronic noses. And so those two basically competitions or, or funding spurts willed into existence a bunch of different ways of turning the chemical world into digital signals. And I think today there's about a half dozen feasible ways of doing this. They're wildly different in how they work. Um, And in order to kind of describe them, we'd have to get really nitty gritty. Uh, But suffice to say, it's way, way, way earlier than cameras are. Um, Definitely earlier than microphones are, because we don't really know how smell works in the first place. We need an odor theory in order to even interpret the signals that come off of these these devices. And then the devices themselves, not case closed there. And so what what my group focuses on is what we think is the first step, the first prerequisite, which is what's the RGB for odor? And is there just three numbers that describe an odor or is there 60 or 600? We don't know. We think we've got a first draft of this RGB for odor and we we published a white paper on it and described a little bit of it. Now we're, we're putting it to use. Um, but we think that odor is not as simple as vision in that there's more than three channels. We think there's a hundred or more. Mm-hmm. And uh, we think that you need this odor space in order to effectively build an electronic nose. Because if you've got signals coming off of some piece of hardware, what do they even mean? Like, what are they telling you? Mm-hmm. You need to convert them into an understandable format like RGB in order to tell what it is that you're smelling. So that's that's the problem that we're working on right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, as much as you can mention, you know, I love that you brought up the smoke detector example because it's this everyday object. I didn't even think about it before you mentioned it, um, but that is like a really simple, you know, hardware nose. What you know, once once someone builds a better machine nose, what are some of the major areas of application that we think are out there that would be immediately useful to humans? There's some prosaic ones, which is you know detecting manufacturing defects. So many of the COVID vaccines that are being manufactured now are being produced by other living things like little yeasts or, you know, they're otherwise a, they're a biological production process because the antibodies or the, the um, uh, mRNA uh, signals are, they're pieces of living things or pieces of life. Mm-hmm. In the process of making them, experienced manufacturers, at least with yeast fermentation, which makes a lot of biological drugs today, they can smell if they're off. And so there's the ability to kind of make sure that we're able to produce the medicines that we need in an effective way by monitoring the manufacturing process. It's the same with cars. People mm-hmm. that are experienced mechanics can smell if something's off, like, oh, is there oil burning or is there something else being burned? 
if you had a nose, you could continuously monitor mm -hmm. that car as it was driving. Yeah. So a lot of quality control applications, and you know, now that I now that I think about it, it's almost obvious because we use our nose. A lot of what we use our actual nose for is quality control. Yeah, like in the fridge, like oh crap, I think I left this for too long, and then you open the Tupperware container, and you're like, I definitely left yeah. this here for too long, <laughs> and you throw it away because not because that smell is going to hurt you. The smell is harmless, but because the smell is being produced by something that could poison you, namely a bacteria. Mm -hmm. uh, or a fungus that's uh, that's eating the food and, and will secrete toxins inside of you if you eat it. And, and that, I think, is the other biggest use is, is health-related. So the, the tradition of smelling and tasting things from patients in medicine is extremely old. So the, the, the name for, the technical name for diabetes is diabetes mellitus. And mellitus uh, means, I think, honey tasting. Because the original way to diagnose diabetes is uh, your pee tastes like honey and your breath tastes or smells sweet. And so this tradition of using a really sensitive sensor between our eyes, our nose, to tell something about what's going on inside of a person's body is a very, very old tradition. And we've largely, largely ignored it in modern medicine. I mean, we've got really great diagnostic tools that use vision. Mm -hmm. and they use hearing or ultrasound uh, as an be, extension. This could be a really simple, non-invasive way to actually do diagnostics. And we know that it will work. If we can build it, it will work because there's a whole slew of papers out there, each with their own little flaws, but together I think amount to very convincing and persuasive evidence that COVID-19 is smellable. There's a recent article out actually showing that bees can be trained to smell COVID-19. Hmm. Uh, Dogs can smell COVID-19. Dogs can smell uh, Parkinson's disease. So can people. Actually, there's a story of a woman, um, I believe from Ireland. I'm not going to get it right. It's either Ireland or the UK. And uh, she was able to smell Parkinson's disease. And some researchers put it to the test. And they said, hey, here's T-shirts from 10 men that uh, either have or don't have Parkinson's disease. So, so this was just some woman walking around claiming that she could detect Parkinson's with her nose. She claimed it because she could smell it on her husband. And then I believe we should check the story. Um, but I believe her husband then got Parkinson's and hmm. so she could smell it on. Um, so she did this test and she was given something like 10 t-shirts and she said, Parkinson's, no Parkinson's for, for all 10 of them. And the researchers graded her and it turned out she got about 90% of it, right? Nine out of 10. And she said, I don't, think I got just nine out of 10, right. I think I got all of them, right. They said, no, actually this person doesn't have Parkinson's. You said that they do. Oh, wow. They and, followed uh, up. That guy got Parkinson's. Oh, wow. So she was able to detect it before the doctors could. Yeah. Wow. And so they, there was actually follow-up studies. I've, I've got to go get these papers because I was actually talking about this earlier today. Um, and they actually tracked on what it was that she was smelling. turns out there's this waxy substance your skin secretes called sebum and it's secreted on different parts of your body but it's secreted on your back as well and uh, inside of the sebum is a is a molecule that seems to be more prevalent in people that have or are developing parkinson's disease and they believe based on that study that that's what she was actually detecting hmm. that's just one molecule of kind of a bouquet uh, and so it might be that you need all of these different molecules at different ratios in order to diagnose a disease but I think that that's the promise is catching diseases early. I mean, I have a personal motivation. My, my father passed away from brain cancer when I was 25 
And we didn't catch it until he was having seizures. And then he got an MRI and there was a tumor in his motor cortex, the size of a golf ball. And based on those growth rates, we maybe had months, perhaps a year or more of time when we could have been intervening uh, to slow the cancer, give him more time or to treat it outright. Um, but in the first place, it's difficult to treat that specific kind of cancer because it's difficult to catch it early. And you get in this catch 22 of like, well, how can you like for Alzheimer's, how can you treat a disease when you don't know they have it until they're too far gone? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's also part of the promise of building better diagnostics using smell is we know that people smell differently in different disease states. You know, our mouths and our skin are kind of like the exhaust pipes for a car. You know, what's coming out of it doesn't tell us everything of what's happening in the engine, but it certainly tells us something. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's, yeah, that, that's fascinating. Um, I want to back up. And so you've had this very interesting trajectory, I think. So we've sort of touched on a couple different pieces of it. You're working at Google now. You did a PhD at Harvard. You did this really cool machine vision work. How, when did you first get into computer programming? How old were you? Three, two, I don't know, oh, really? very young. Yeah. I mean, I've always, always around computers from a very young age and everybody growing up always asked me like, oh, are you going to go, you know, work on computers? Uh, you're going to be a computer scientist or a computer programmer. And I was like, what? It's like asking a fish about water. Um, and so I, I had interests that weren't necessarily just computers, but I, you know, I always was playing with computers, programming computers, making things. Uh, and so I never thought I'd make a career out of it. And in a way I still kind of am not like I'm a biologist that wears a computer scientist costume by day, I guess. Um, and I, I should, I should mention, you know, this intersection of the life sciences and of computer sciences, like I've just lived at that slice for, I guess, 20 years now. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I don't really want to live at any other intersection because there's still so much promise and possibility. And if I may be so bold, I'd, I'd recommend if you care about that intersection to uh, listen to a podcast I do called theory and practice, uh, which I, um, I'm a host of that with, uh, a fellow named Anthony Philippakis, who's the chief data officer at the Broad, and this is uh, something that we put out with GV. So he's also a venture partner at, at uh, Alphabet's venture capital wing, and so we kind of explore this intersection with like really interesting people. Um, so we just talked with David Altshuler today. Actually, that episode's coming out this Thursday. So kind of the founder of modern genetics and statistical genetics and stuff. Uh, and we've talked with uh, Professor Sir Rory Collins, who started the UK Biobank, and I mean just amazing, amazing people. Um, and I'm kind of living in their in their shadow, hoping to uh, eventually uh, do something that's uh, kind of worthy of their of their achievements as well. So, did you just sort of organically start learning and 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 fiddling around with stuff on your own, or did you have any like did did you take computer courses when you were a kid? I took one day of C plus <laughs> plus at the University of Michigan, and. I was just so bored. I walked out and I just dropped the class. <laughs> um, but I just been doing it for a long time, just making stuff like, mm. you know, some people like to woodwork. And so they get a really good kinesthetic sense with their hands of how to build things, or they like electronics or something. And I just gravitated towards computers and have been, you know, working with them and, and programming on them for a long, long time. Um, in between undergraduate and graduate school, I kind of was part of the iPhone app gold rush. And so I lived in basically a closet in San Francisco 
and uh, made iPhone apps uh, for audio stuff. So I made like an oscilloscope and a Fourier transform app. And I've just always been nerding out making stuff on the computer. Mm -hmm. Do you ever, like I never, I didn't learn computer programming until way later in my life. And, you know, computer technology are just eating everything. They're so important for just everything that we do in society now. Do you ever think about like, this is sort of a random question, but like, do you, do you think about early childhood education and whether or not something like computer programming should be something that we actually teach in schools the same way that we teach reading and writing? I completely think that we should. And it's not so much that we're teaching computer programming as we're teaching a way of thinking hmm. that, you know, the computer is stupid. It doesn't do anything that you don't tell it to do. Mm -hmm. Right. It's, it is, it is unintelligent in the definition of the word. Like it can't infer things. It can't read between the lines. If you say add two plus two, it's never going to infer that you're, you know, trying to count up uh, an inventory and then figure out, okay, I need to add these other numbers to it as well. Um, it only does what it's told. And sometimes people write sophisticated computer programs that look like they're doing interesting things like playing the game of go or Starcraft. Uh, but ultimately, those computers are being told what to do um, in one way or another. And I think, you know, adopting that mindset of like, okay, I want to achieve a task. How can I break it down into its constituent pieces and specify them so clearly that they can be done forever and ever and ever um, by a computer over and over and over again? Uh, and I think that way of thinking is going to become really important uh, going forward. I mean, it already is. Uh, and, uh, I think we'll, we'll see a generation of people, I hope, that kind of take it for granted. I want them to take it for granted. I want them to, you know, call me an old fart and say, like, I don't want to hear your, your days of before computers, you know, could recognize images or smells, old man. Like, I want them to assume those things exist and then do amazing things on top of that. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that, you know, our machines are stupid. Um, a lot of people use the term, the term artificial intelligence is so widespread now that, you know, two people using it are often referring to very different things. So on the one hand, we have these artificially intelligent, quote unquote, uh, computer systems that are able to do things like play the game Go and, and things that are very sophisticated. And yet, as, as you've mentioned, they clearly aren't able to do what our own human brains and minds can do. Do you have any thoughts on what some of the essential differences are there? What is it that allows our brains to do some of the things that even our best computer systems can't do yet? Well, if I could answer the question, I'd, I'd be looking into that very deeply <laughs> and making interesting new algorithms. But I think what you highlight is important. The first thing you mentioned, which is artificial intelligence is a term that people don't use precisely because it's not a precise term. It just generally means let's try to make computers smarter. It's a field of scientific study. A subfield of AI is machine learning, which does have a precise meaning. So you, if you hear AI and machine learning used interchangeably, sometimes that's okay. Uh, but machine learning is probably the term that you want to use. And that refers to the field of study or of practice where you're trying to get computers to solve a task by showing them examples mm -hmm. of how that task was solved. And that's like a subtype called supervised learning, but that's, that's most of the applications you'll see today. Um, and so ML, I think is, uh, it's, it's a fixture in, I think industry, it like really works. 
And there's this question then of like, well, are we approaching human intelligence? As you say, like the program that can play Go can't drive a car. It can now it can play chess because it's been trained on both Go and chess. Um, but it can't uh, it can't read a sonnet and tell you why it's interesting or beautiful or what it's referencing. Um, you'd have to build a separate system for that, and you probably could. Um, and as 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 for why our brains are so much more capable, I, I don't know. I mean, one thing that I'll, I'll mention is, you know, we've built these computer programs under radically different constraints and our brains have evolved, right? Mm -hmm. So our brains have to be powered by things we put in our mouth. It's <laughs> wild, right? <laughs> like it's an incredibly powerful processing machine that can survive under incredibly diverse circumstances, much more than a computer can and can make more of itself. I mean, really incredible constraints that this thing is under. Computers are not. Computers can be powered, you know, by you know, yeah. more than just food, mm -hmm. and so they can they have more kind of raw processing power available to them. And also, you know, if you think of intelligence as an object of study, I don't really know how to define intelligence, but imagine you're studying it same way you're studying aerodynamics. If you understood aerodynamics and you built something to be aerodynamic, would you arrive at a bird or would you arrive at a plane? We've arrived at planes, which look very different, but still exploit the same fundamental properties of aerodynamics that birds do. Planes just don't hop from tree to tree because they don't need to. They hop from airport to airport. And there's a whole support staff that loads them and unloads them and learns to fly them and everything. It's a very, very different ecosystem built around our understanding and instantiation of aerodynamics. So I, th I think whether or not we find the answer in our lifetimes is an open question to me um, of, of how our brains work and why they're different than, than the kind of simple systems that we've designed so far. But I don't necessarily think that we should expect that our implementation of intelligence should look or behave uh, like ours does. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the fact that, you know, so much of our cognition, so, so you, you've mentioned earlier in our discussion on behavior, of behavior that for humans, for mice, no matter what the animal is, no matter how simple or sophisticated it, it is, the brain is ultimately in some sense there to just move the body around so that the animal survives and ultimately reproduces. And a lot of learning you know, to be coarse grained about it just has to do with sensory motor integration and sensory motor associations. And our computers don't have bodies for the most part. They're sort of static. They don't have to yeah. move a part of themselves around um, the way we do. Do you think that that could be an important piece of, you know, what what an intelligence can do is whether or not it has a body? Oh, that's a great point. I mean, Bruno Olshausen, um, who's kind of is uh, one of my scientific heroes. I think he's a luminary in and theoretical neuroscience and also in, in machine learning. He gave this talk. It must have been eight years ago. I, I forget. It was in it was in Toronto. It was at a conference called CIFAR, and he basically raised this question, which is like, our robots are really dumb. Like he showed an example of a, of a little bug called the jumping spider. And this jumping spider actually has eyes on a swivel. It's got eight eyes like spiders do, but it's got two that can actually like look left to right. And it's got this weird retina. That's like a patch that's up and down and it can plan. It can look at a 3d maze of little interlocking bars, figure out where the food is. And he can look around, sit, and then make one jump or two jumps and actually get to some food goal. Mm -hmm. 
Hmm. It can do 3D planning. And it has a whole body that it needs to move around and feed. And in that tiny little body, it's able to perform computations that you know whole data centers are currently unable to do because our computers don't have bodies that they need to solve these problems with for the most part. I mean, there's robots, of course, and robots and algorithms collaborate to produce you know, an entity that can move around. Mm-hmm. The, the other observation where I think our, this is my personal opinion, where our robotics is, is askew from how life is solving its problems is, and this is an observation from David Cox, formerly of, of uh, Harvard Neuroscience, I think now at, at IBM, he made this point to me that stuck with me, which is our bodies are dramatically oversensed and underactuated. Meaning for every little bit of ability that we have to move our bodies, there's many, many times more abilities to sense what's going on around us, hmm. where we have way more sensors than we, than we strictly need. If you're thinking in terms of like control theory and you know engineering, mm-hmm. we have way, way, way more sensors than we would need to actually move around. There's something fundamental about that that I don't think we understand. And I think if we're going to, you know, again, my opinion, if we're going to build intelligent embodied systems, like systems with, with bodies that can move around and do stuff, I think we need to examine the, the miracle that is our sensory abilities. I mean, like, look at your hand. It's waterproof. Uh, it can sense hot and cold at a pixel resolution of like less than a millimeter or something like that. Um, it can sense sharp touch, a vibrational touch, soft touch. Uh, it can tell if I'm blowing on it because it's a combination of a change in temperature and also a slight change in pressure. And I've got hair, you know, some people don't, I've got a lot of it um, that uh, can detect small deflections as well. Um, it's, and it's covering something that's moving and it's relatively durable. I mean, are just a, a dime of skin is a miracle that we cannot produce in any laboratory in the world. And I think that's a humbling fact, but a motivating one as well, that what our bodies do, the kind of abilities that we acquire at birth, far outstrip, far outstrip anything that we can engineer. Mm-hmm. But I just, I mean, it's not even, it's not even close. Uh, we, we are miraculous. And I, I don't think we should forget that. Yeah, I've never really thought about it quite that way. But there are, I mean, if you were to reduce this down to bits, you'd, you'd be talking about an incredible amount of information that our bodies detect every moment through every sensory channel. And that's really interesting to think about. Do you think, I mean, a lot of people have, I, I hear people make statements like, um, you know, our machine learning algorithms aren't actually smart because we need to give them millions or billions of examples. But when you think about it the way you just described, it's almost like our sensory apparatuses are just constantly giving us this massive training data set at all times. So maybe it's actually the other direction. Maybe we just have a more large corpus of inputs. Yeah, that's interesting. There's a couple couple ideas in there. You know, The first complaint is like, uh, they can't be intelligent because they require all these, they require all these like, uh, you know, labeled data points. Mm-hmm. There's this notion of, I forget, there's some term for it, but there's this receding wave of intelligence, which is like, oh, we build a system that can beat a grandmaster in chess. We thought that would be intelligent, but when you open up the hood, it doesn't really look that intelligent. It's a bunch of rules about what to do and how to brute force search into the future. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I guess chess wasn't an intelligent activity. And then you go solve Go, which is dramatically more complex, at least in terms of board positions. 
And you say, oh, okay, that must have been something intelligent. And you look under the hood and you can kind of mostly understand how that system works. Hmm. Um, and so you think, oh, okay, it must not be intelligent. Maybe Go isn't the activity uh, that requires true intelligence. And it's always this receding this wave. And of course, chess requires intelligence. Of course, Go requires intelligence. But you can engineer systems that don't look like what you thought they'd look like that can solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's, that's, uh, that's something to, to take note of. But we are not data efficient. So when we feel something, we're not getting labels for it, right? When, we, when I touch this, the top of my you know, water bottle or touch my keyboard, I'm not getting the label water bottle or keyboard from nothing. Like I have mm-hmm. memories, of course. When I see a horse, you know, and I say horsey when I'm like a little kid, if my parents say, good job, I've got one label, one. And, but the thing is, kids can then look at a camel and say horsey. And their parents say, no, that's a camel, not a horsey. And then they learn, they never make the mistake again. There's not really that capability existing to that extent in machine learning today. So it is a valid criticism and it's an area of active exploration, which is how can we be more efficient with the data that we learn so efficient as to kind of match our own human learning abilities. And we're not there yet. I want to shift gears a little bit. So you've always been dealing in technology. You've always been interested in computers. You went through the academic route as did I. And then we both went into the private sector and yep. we took off the collar. We, we took off we, the collar. <laughs> well, I want to talk about this. Um, I was talking about I get, the priest collar, not the constraining collar, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the academy. It, it, it has certain rules and right, right. if you leave, it's difficult to come back and all that. Yeah. And I, you know, people ask me about this all the time, um, especially people that are still in academia that are mm. you know, thinking about this. And as far as I can tell from the analytics, there's probably a solid number of like p- people in the PhD student postdoc world that listen to the podcast. How do you feel about your trajectory in terms of like, do you ever miss the research world? I'm sure you do to, in some, to some extent. Would you ever go back or do you feel like you enjoy where you ended up more than I... if you had stayed in? I didn't know how to say it at the time because leaving was actually really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt like I was leaving. I mean, I had an identity built around yeah. being, yeah. you know, doing a PhD, maybe being a professor. That was a part of me, how I saw myself. It was very difficult to leave that behind. I'd be curious to hear what what you felt. Actually, maybe just how was your experience yeah. departing? Because you, you went right from uh, academia into a startup, which is the deep end. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I'll tell that story. Um, but I mean, I'm hearing everything I'm about to say, I can hear echoes of in, in what you just started to say, which is uh, it, was an ident- it was really an identity crisis. So it was actually really, it was really hard for me to leave. And it probably seemed sudden, even though it wasn't quite as sudden as it seemed to other people. Um, but I guess the key thing to understand is when I was in college, I was always interested in science. So, and I got right into a lab, a good lab early on. And like pretty much from the day I walked into that lab, I was like, this is it. Like I am a scientist. I know exactly what my track in life is. So I had this purpose and identity. Like I sort of knew what my life was going to be. Yeah. And I mean, that is when people say they're looking for meaning in life, they just want that intrinsic sense of having direction. And so like I had it really early on, like age 18. And I went all the way through five years of working in the lab in college and then went right into, you know, really good graduate school programs. And I was like, 
this is, I didn't even think about it. I was like, this is, this is my track. And in retrospect, I didn't sort of realize it as it was happening fully, but in retrospect, what happened was, I would say, I don't know, around halfway through my PhD, I was, I was feeling that I maybe didn't want to do this anymore, but I didn't actually recognize that. So I had like, you know, just these sort of weird feelings of anxiety or I'm not like really satisfied with what I'm doing, but I didn't identify them as I don't want to be doing this as a career. It's also difficult because in the middle of the PhD, that's a perfectly normal thing to feel because you're on your own. The whole point of the PhD is to discover something nobody ever knew before. Mm -hmm. If that doesn't like make you want to like shit your pants at least a little bit, like (laughs) you need need to like check your attitude. Like that should be humbling and anxiety inducing, at least in part. Yeah. And so like in in some sense, you should feel that knowing that, you know, even if you're going to get past it, especially if you you stay on that track. And um, so so I, I was sort of grappling with that without really articulating it to myself because, because of this, you know, it was my identity. And I think just people don't want to, they don't want to have a sense of their identity dissolving, which is more or less, I think what was happening. So um, it was, it was tough for me to leave in that sense. Um, And I definitely miss aspects of it. Like I, I'm definitely an sort of academic person. I love just reading and talking about interesting stuff, which is sort of the fundamental motivation for going through that track. But you know, now that I've come out of it and I can sort of see it from a different perspective, I wouldn't choose to go back into it. That's, I guess, the bottom line. Yeah. Um, not that you know, not that working in the private sector is better in every single way. It's not. There's trade-offs and it's just different. But I, I would say I'm I'm glad I went through it. I'm also glad I left academia. I think a lot of it has to do with. Um, I think to be a successful scientist in the academic world, one of the toughest things about it is you have to become good, come good at things you are absolutely not interested doing. Like you have to become a very good bureaucrat, right? If you have, if you want to be a successful scientist and if you love science enough that you can also do that, that is just the nature of the beast with our current institutions, you know, structured as they are. But I think I eventually just came to realize like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I, I just don't want to do that. Yeah. I mean, I think your experience mirrors mine in a lot of different ways. What, excuse me, what, what, um, what I, I basically run a lab. I didn't think that, that I would get to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really thought I was leaving all of that behind and I would never think about raising money. I would never think about writing grants or writing papers. I just wanted to build cool stuff that lots of people used. And I did that for a while and it was awesome. And then I, cu- I couldn't get away <laughs> and I needed to work on the question that I was working on, which is like, why the heck do things smell the way that they do? And, and can we put this inside of a computer? I've been obsessed about this for like 15 years and I finally got the chance to work on it. And now all of a sudden I basically run a lab. Um, I mean, that's not my title, but kind of effectively a PI. Um, I work with amazing people, which is such a privilege. I mean, just like really brilliant, staggeringly brilliant people, which is just great. And I raise money. I, I mean, the way it works at Google is I don't write an R01 to the NIH, but 
you know, you don't just get free money at a company. You have mm-hmm. to, you know, make a good case for it and yeah. ask permission and things like that. And it ends up taking the form of a proposal in some form or the other. And so, yeah, I ended up doing all those things just inside of a company as opposed to academia. And, but I came to it on my terms and I came to it after a five-year hiatus and I don't do, I don't ask and try to answer any other question than the ones that I'm interested in, which isn't just, a, I know how privileged I am. Mm-hmm. It's just awesome. And I'm, I'm happy for it every day. And as for whether I would go back, um, maybe, maybe, I mean, you, you see this trend in industry researchers where sometimes they'll go to a different company where they do industry research. So I work with people that have been through many different companies like mm-hmm. uh, DEC, which you probably haven't heard of, which birthed a lot of amazing uh, researchers that are you know at Microsoft today or Facebook or, or Google. And so there's a modern industrial research system, you know, and there wasn't in this strength about 20 years ago, but there was in the era of Bell Labs and Xerox Park. So it comes and mm-hmm. comes and goes in phases. So maybe, or maybe I'll yeah. go back into startups and do that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I will say like one, one of the things I should mention um, is part of the reason I think I'm like comfortable outside of academia is even though I'm outside of it, I nonetheless figured out a way as part of my actual job to do research. Yeah. Like I'm, so I'm still doing the research. Professionally curious. That's the yeah. point, right? There's just more than one way to be professionally curious. Part of the travesty of academia is they don't, they're beginning to wise up that they have to tell you that because there's so few jobs at the top. So there's many, many more graduate students than there mm-hmm. are postdoc positions, many, many more postdoc positions in an extreme way than there are faculty jobs. Yeah. And it's just not responsible as a training program to not at least tell people about alternate careers, quote, alternate, right? As if that's like, you know, the other way. Um, And, you know, training programs like, you know, where we were at Harvard towards the end of my time there, they were beginning to to be a little bit more express about that, which is a good thing. Um, The travesty, I think you mentioned about becoming a bureaucrat. I, I have a slightly different view on it, which is so I'm effectively, I do a lot of bureaucratic work. I mean, I've got to go to meetings and, you know, be on committees and, you know, hiring decisions and stuff like that. I do a lot of paperwork basically uh, because I care about my problem and I care about my team and I want them to succeed. And sometimes that's what you have to do. The difference is, is that I received training at Twitter and at Google for how to do that, how to mm-hmm. manage, how to lead. Mm-hmm. And as a young professor, I see this in some of my peers, my friends that are, you know, my age, slightly older, slightly younger, they are thrust into a position of basically being the CEO right. of a little startup where they've got to figure out how to keep the lights on. They've got to manage, they've got to balance their profits and losses. I mean, yeah. they're spending money and there's only so much money you can spend before you're out of it. And then you got to go raise more. Um, and they were taught how to do none of it. Yeah. There's no ramp up. None. And, you know, my, my partner uh, was in the, is in the military. Um, and so she went to West Point Academy, uh, the U.S. Military Academy for her undergraduate. And uh, then she did some other training after that and is uh, now kind of in the business world. But at West Point, they were tr- their actual training was how to be a leader and how to lead people and manage efforts uh, in order to achieve a common shared goal. And 
I didn't even realize that was possible to be trained how to lead at a young age. I thought that was something you kind of fell into and stumbled around and eventually you just sucked less at it after you did a bunch of it. But no, it's a discipline. It's a trade. Mm -hmm. And in academia, they don't treat it as such. They treat it as something you learn by accident. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing that you need to be really good at is if you're a molecular biologist pipetting um, or if you're a computer scientist writing code, but then ultimately it's your job to train the next generation and to lead those people into doing amazing science and becoming the best version of those versions of themselves. And I think it's a bit of a travesty in academia that that's left up to chance that you just, mm. some people figure it out. Some people don't. Um, I don't think that's right. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting like set of set of things to think about. Like on the one hand, you know, I, I stand by most of the things I said, but I should add the caveat that like, you know, when I said I don't like the bureaucracy part of it, one of the things, you know, in my 20 and 22 year old and 24 year old brain that was naive was, um, you know, I, th I thought, I think I thought of myself as the scientist and part of that was never having to do that other stuff, quote unquote, other <laughs> right. stuff. But, right. you know, eventually I learned that no, like every, no matter where you go, you, you do have to do that other stuff. Yeah, it's like, but, I live in an apartment, but I don't do dishes. <laughs> I don't right, do laundry. Right, no, right. like there's all kinds yeah. of stuff you got to do that you don't necessarily want to do at any given moment in time for the regular maintenance and furthering of your actual goals. Um, but I have definitely thought that too, yeah. which is why I did laundry so infrequently as a graduate yeah. student. <laughs> I do think one of the fundamental differences between so you think about the set of all interesting things you might do as an academic and you, and you think about the set of all interesting things you might do in the private sector. And there are a lot, um, way more than I realized before, like sort of like got out, um, the supply demand mismatch for on the labor side, you know, that you touched on is a big difference. Like mm -hmm. there simply aren't enough spots for all the postdocs that are talented and doing good work. And that's pretty much not true in the private sector. Yep, totally agree. And I, you know, I think we we saw a lot of our classmates end up in you know, what you could generically describe as data science, mm -hmm. and that's because at least in our little line of work in neuroscience, we had to analyze some data. And it turns mm -hmm. out that analyzing some data and kind of slaving away at that uh, is super valuable. And we learned kind of by doing, and and so like developed a valuable skill set. And you know, our classmates as as a cohort ended up actually, you know, being pretty valuable in the workforce and they should be valued. We should all be valued for the work that we do. And what's nice about the market is that there's a price associated with it and you get, you get paid in dollars and stock as opposed to, uh, you know, glory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it as opposed to glory. Um, I do want to ask you before we run out of time to tell the story. So you've got this interesting technical background you've got the biology background, you're at Google now. But before you even got to Google, you, you mentioned briefly at the beginning that some of the work you were doing with some of your computer science colleagues in graduate school turned into a startup that Twitter acquired. Can you, can you talk, talk us through that story and how that transpired? Sure. So it was, um, it was initially uh, a really close friend of mine, Jasper Snook, and his advisor, Ryan Adams, who ended up becoming a mentor of mine. And they invented some really, really cool technology called Bayesian optimization. And uh, they didn't invent it, they refined it. And they figured out that they could tune all kinds of things. 
uh, that sounds really simple and trivial, but ends up being pretty deep. So if you imagine, what's an example? Um, so you might have an example from your industry where you need to make a blend of something mm -hmm. and you got to get the knobs just right on the blend in order to really hit the nail on whatever problem you're solving. And, you know, it could be like, oh, the temperature has got to be just right. Like if you're making coffee, for instance, the grind size has got to be just right. The temperature has got to be just right. The roast time has got to be just right. All these things. And there's a minimum and a maximum for each of those. We call them parameters. Mm -hmm. And uh, if they're set randomly, you know, you're going to get a bad cup of coffee, maybe undrinkable. But if you set it just right, you'll get something sublime. And so turns out what they invented was a system to automatically tune these things with feedback using a minimal number of rounds of experimentation in a way that was like pretty close to optimal. They'd find the best cup of coffee uh, as long as what you had to do is do exactly what the algorithm said, which is try these settings. You had to sip the coffee and say, this is good on a scale from one to 10. It would take that rating and then give you a next proposal. And turns out there's all kinds of problems that are like that. Mm -hmm. an enormous number of problems that are like that. Um, and they commercialized that piece of software. Uh, in fact, there's a, there's a company that exists that's kind of continuing that tradition right now for industrial applications. Um, uh, so you can imagine like biological fermentation for like beer, for instance, like there's a lot of parameters, like the amount of hops that you add, the amount of malt, the timing of it, the temperature, all that stuff. It needs to be set perfectly in order for you to get a really great, you know, glass of beer. Um, so we didn't necessarily know what we were going to tune. We just thought we'd put together a company and it was originally four machine learning professor types and myself, I wouldn't have called myself a machine learner at that point. Um, and, uh, they kind of brought me in cause I had built all these apps before and had programming experience kind of just doing it. And, mm. uh, so I helped them build the website basically, uh, and some of the backend stuff. And what we got really good at is tuning other machine learning algorithms. So it's kind of a meta thing where it's like a, it was a machine learning system that tuned other machine learning systems and turned out that's a really big roadblock in the way of industrial application of machine learning. If you come up with some new idea or get some new data set, you need to tune that algorithm in order mm -hmm. to work well at all. Yeah, and anyone that's can just really, run, really time consuming. Anyone can just run some out of the box package, but doing it with all the knobs put in you know, all the best positions is, is the tough thing. Yeah. And, and the difference of something that's not tuned versus well-tuned could be hundreds of millions of dollars, mm -hmm. both in what you're making in terms of your revenue of whatever your revenue model is for your company or in cost savings. If you're tuning your data centers to save money, like that's a thing that we did and it worked out really, really well. We saved them a lot of money. Um, but what we, we originally did was we tuned the models that were being used to protect the safety of Twitter users. And on like my first day at Twitter, um, we were told what it was that we were doing. And it was basically identifying obscene images. <laughs> and uh, it's not what I expected to get into. Um, but we said, okay, this is the big problem. We need, Twitter needs to be safe. It needs to be you know, scrubbed of things that people don't want to see. And it's still an ongoing struggle on the Twitter platform, I should say. Um, and uh, we got right to it and learned a lot about all sides of humanity in the process. <laughs> and the, uh, the acquiring company that brought us in was the first, they were the first kind of deep learners at Twitter, the first people applying neural networks um, in a concerted way at Twitter. And so with our powers combined, we basically built the hot dog, no hot dog mm -hmm. app for Twitter. <laughs> How did you go about, so, you know, there's a lot of graduate students and a lot of talented people out there that are building amazing things, but they have no concept 
of how to commercialize or think about a strategy for doing something with the thing that they built. How did you guys actually go about getting acquired? We got really lucky. Um, that's the short of it. The slightly longer answer is we really tried to understand our customer. We didn't ever build a revenue model. We kind of failed in that way, but we really understood our customer, which was other people building machine learning models. They were us, right? We used our system actually to tune our own system. I mean, we, <laughs> we, we ate our own dog food and it turned out that there was enough of a need at, in some small pockets of industry for this particular technology that we got inbound interest. And the way that we got inbound interest is, and this was my small contribution to the company, and this wasn't the only way that we got inbound interest, but I made integrations between our system and all the other machine learning systems I could find. So I made it as easy as possible to use our system. That ended up getting the notice of somebody that was working at Twitter that said, oh, there's a company attached to this. Oh, there's some machine learning talent, me excluded at that time. Um, and then they ended up kind of taking a closer look, you know, doing a, a bake off mm -hmm. between our system and what they had been doing internally. And we blew them out of the water. Um, you, made, you made it easy for people to find, find you guys and use the technology. Yeah. Yeah. And just got lucky. I mean, we didn't, we understood ourselves and it turns out there were other people that were like us that needed this and that had resources to acquire us. Um, but other than that, um, I, I think, you know, in, in, in subsequent startups that I've founded and, and advised, I mean, the, the main thing is just who's, what are you selling? Who's going to buy it and for how much? And you don't have to have an answer to that right away, but like, you should definitely be thinking about that. Uh, because if, if nobody's buying it, you don't have a company. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that was, that was kind of like the wake up call and the surprise for uh, me. And then a lot of my colleagues from biology is like, oh, if I make something cool, people will want it. Right. No, 100% no. Um, except in very extenuating circumstances. Um, you need to solve a problem for somebody who has the money to want to have the problem go away. Mm -hmm. Like I'm hungry. I'm willing to spend $2 on a candy bar, make that problem go away. Mm -hmm. Right. You need to find a problem uh, that people are willing to trade money, money for. So before we end, I'll just ask uh, an open-ended question. Uh, any area, what, what are the areas of like AI or machine learning applications, not necessarily related to stuff that you're working on or behavior that you're really optimistic and excited about that we might see a lot of innovation happen around in the next couple of years? Great question. I mean, I, I'm working on what I'm working on because I believe it's a frontier. So I mm -hmm. think, you know, giving computers new senses, particularly the sense of smell is, is huge. It's a huge untapped area. Mm -hmm. The other area that's exploding is the ability to generate natural language text. And you're mm -hmm. seeing this in GPT-3 and um, there's a system at Google that does something equivalent. Um, computers used to be able to generate a couple words at a time that could fool us. And now I think they can generate whole paragraphs, mm -hmm. not multiple paragraphs. So they kind of lose the thread in the plot. Yeah, and yeah. so I think that's an area of just immense opportunity is computers interacting with us in a meaningful way using just plain language. Yeah. I think I, I'm also fascinated by that area. In fact, the last episode I did was with a guy named Terrence Deacon, who's a professor at Berkeley. And he, he has some fascinating ideas in his work that he discussed around symbolic representation and the evolution and development of language. And he had some interesting commentary on why or why not machines today can't 
actually use language the way that we might want them to. So if you're interested in that area, check it out. Um, that was a fascinating conversation. But yeah, I cannot wait to see what you know what machines are doing in two or three years linguistically. I think the frontier that very few people are working on, but I think more people should work on in that vein is understanding what is a story. Mm. Understanding what is a character and their relationships to each other in a story. And you know, the, the, the one way of phrasing the problem of like, well, why can't we generate two paragraphs that are coherent as opposed to just one? It's because there's no plot. And there's also no data. There's very, very little data on like the story of the structure, the structure of the story. And that's an area of kind of personal fascination of mine. I, I don't work on it. I, I hope to someday. But, you know, even just telling, telling like a fairy tale, something mm -hmm. simple, but that actually is as engaging and as fantastical and maybe perhaps laden with meaning and, 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 and a lesson, we're not able to do that. Um, and uh, understanding what is the kind of skeletal underlying structure of a, of a narrative and a story, I think is, is a fascinating frontier as well. Awesome. Well, Alex, thanks for your time. It was great to talk to you again. Good to talk to you too, man. Yeah. And I uh, hope we talk again soon. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Be well. 